G'day, Jeremy Corbett here, and uh, how, how did this happen? I'm on Bean Break with Blake. Indeed he is. Welcome to this episode of Bean Break. This week our guest is the wonderful Jeremy Corbett. Said that. <laughs> I, just, I literally just said that, Blake, and now what are you... Carry on. No, do, do your thing. <laughs> oh, this is going to be an interesting one. Host of Seven Days and mm-hmm. is also on the project. Yep. And surely is doing many other things that we will hopefully find out about. No, that's it. That, oh, that's they're it. They're the only things I do. Then I go home and play video games. Ah, oh, so you're a teenager. Mm. I am, pretty much. <laughs> well, I don't think men change that much, particularly men. About Around about 14 or 15, I think you're locked into pretty much what you're going to be. The external changes, but the internal, not much. You learn how to moderate it a little bit. You learn how to hide it, but but essentially that that's that's a fully formed male. The psyche stays the same. Yep. Awesome. Well, I guess that leads into our first question nicely. Mm. Who are you? Who am I? That's a very good question. Um, I'm just I'm just a, a an average Kiwi from from Palmy North, but I was born in Westport, so that's always handy to have in the back pocket when you're uh, when you're in Aucklander going down the South Island and they start calling you a Jaffa and a Dorklander, to say you were born in Westport opens a lot of doors, gets you the VIP card to the South Island. So that's good. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a 60-year-old, uh, six-foot-two computer programmer turned radio broadcaster, stand-up comedian and TV presenter, um, father of two, husband of one. What's a pet owner called? Don't know. We've got a dog, <laughs> anyway, called Cookie. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, and um, my f- philosophy in life is near enough is good enough. That's NAGE that comes out as the acronym NAGE. Near enough is good enough because I just think that um, sometimes, uh, what is it, perfection is the enemy of of production or something like that. Um, so, the, yeah, that's my philosophy. And and do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. So does that give you a sort of a picture of where I'm coming from? Yeah. I, t- I think I'm quite positive. I do tend to see the funny in things. That's just the way my mind works, which is why I gravitated to, you know, stand up and, and entertainment radio. Awesome. How did you get your start in stand-up? Massey University, which was in Palmerston North. We, uh, I was there in the early 80s, and they had a capping review, which is around sort of the graduation time. And it's a bit of a tradition over in the UK, and I know in Dunedin, Otago, got quite a famous sort of capping review tradition. But with us in Palmy at Massey, it was a bunch of us that uh, put on a show, essentially, for, for people. Well, really for ourselves, I remember my mum and dad coming along and suffering through it. God bless them. But yeah, that was that was what it was. We were basically, we thought we were Monty Python. We were well short of that, but made some good friends doing that. So that's that's kind of how I started, I guess, writing and performing comedy. And that, But that was more sketch comedy, wasn't so much stand-up. And then, well, long story short, we eventually, a lot of those people ended up in Auckland. We started up a comedy club and we were still sort of doing sketch comedy. And then a bloke named Andrew Clay um, was a Kiwi, came back from Australia and he just stood up with the microphone and just talked. And we we're like, oh, you can do that. And that's kind of, we gravitated into doing that and sort of slowly moved away from the sketch stuff into, into stand-up. Awesome. Did you prefer writing or performing? I, I prefer performing, but you have to do the writing <laughs> to get to that stage. <laughs> so p- performing is... I gear in some ways performing is the easier part of that equation. Um, <clears throat> we've just done the seven days tour, which is uh, where we take the seven days TV show on the road. And in that we do the first half is, is stand up comedy. And we each there's about, there's seven of us and we each do seven minutes and to write a new seven minutes of comedy every year 
of good comedy is hard, real hard. But once you've got it, it's a pleasure to do it. What did you do before you got into radio? Yeah, well, sort of. I guess radio happened at the same time at Massey University as well. So I guess the things I really got from university were the extracurricular things like the capping review and, and Radio Massey. I, I stalked the station manager until I found him in front of the uh, schedule and there was a blank spot and I said, that'll be me then. Because <laughs> he wasn't keen on giving me a spot, but he did. And uh, on Radio Massey, and it was, it was good. It was fun. I was... I was yeah, it was um, the ugly duckling phase of anyone's career, and you know, did some some terrible things and some average things. But uh, but yeah, that was that was sort of where uh, radio started for me. Was was at at university as well. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> what did you do before radio? Oh, okay, right, yeah. So so while I was at university, uh, I used to take blood off people during the holidays. My dad was the local pathologist. He had his own laboratory. So for a holiday job, I'd become a phlebotomist and I'd put on a white coat and I'd go and extract blood from people. But my uh, degree was in English and then I added computer programming to that as well because there weren't many jobs in English. Most people already spoke it. Uh, So yeah, so I added computer programming and became a computer programmer. And weirdly, it actually worked out really well because English gave me some communication skills. And back in those days, the people that were good at computing did not relate to humans. They were m- machine code uh, savants. But so, so I became like a go-between. I could actually communicate with people and sort of understand the computing side of things. So weirdly, it worked out to be a great combo. Awesome. Did you keep up the computer? Yeah, I, I did. I, I was a computer analyst for several years after uni, sort of in, in tandem with doing radio and a bit of comedy. But computing was my job, and I went to Perth, lived there for four years, and I was a computer analyst over there for four years, and then gave it all up, came back, took a massive pay cut, and went into radio full-time, writing ads. Awesome. So I'm guessing you didn't jump straight to going into Kim and Corbett. What happened in your career no, I before didn't. then? Um, so, so like I said, I took a massive pay cut from my computing days, <laughs> came back to Palmy North and worked on what was 2XS at the time. It's now more FM. And worked in Palmy North there writing ads for a little while. And then the station manager there, Larry Somerville, uh, moved up to Auckland. And uh, then the program director, Roger Clamp, he moved up to Auckland. And they had a bit of a bit of a joke at, at 91 FM in Auckland, which was the station they were at. They had a bit of a joke that every time the lift opened, another person from Palmerston North would step out. <laughs> and so it happened with me. Eventually I was part of that chain and I stepped out of the elevator in Auckland to... Um, into 91 FM and I became the producer of the breakfast show and that breakfast show had six or seven people on it if you counted me. So we had Alison Wall who was a comedian on TV at the time on a show called More Issues. She did Traffic. We had the Leishman brothers, Mark and Phil, who were uh, pretty famous at the time. They were doing the, uh, the sports side of things and Kim Adamson, who teaches you your fine craft now and Danny Watson were the the on-air team and we had a uh, Mike Vincent in there as well I think at some stage anyway it was a massive crew and I was sort of producer which essentially meant ringing up with stupid voices awesome what was it like being a part of Kim and Corbett what were the highlights and the lowlights yeah oh, so I missed out the step yeah so so from Kim and Danny then it became Mark and Kim and then eventually uh, they got fired which was a story in itself mm-hmm. And um, and then this station called More FM started up, and they got Kim and I. They asked us to be on the on the breakfast show, 
and that was kind of weird, Kim and I standing, talking to each other because I'd been his producer for so long, so I wasn't used to being his co-host. But he was great, as you know he is, and he just um, taught me really simply and easily um, how to do my job. And um, that's how Kim and Corbett became uh, a thing. Now we're on to your next question, which was? Uh, what were the highlights and the lowlights of Kim and Corbett? Uh the, the there were, there weren't many lowlights. The low light was the ending. That was uh, that was pretty crappy. Um, it was really badly dealt with. They sort of decided that they didn't need Kim anymore, which I think was a mistake. But the even bigger mistake was saying sometime in the next two years we're going to fire him. So he was fired, but he was sort of he was told, yeah, you will be ending sometime in the next two years. And you can imagine trying to do a an upbeat, funny radio show when you've been told you've got a, a death sentence, it was, that was horrendous, that was terrible. Um, and there, nobody handled that particularly well, including myself. And um, yeah, <clears throat> so that was that was definitely a low light, but a lot of highlights. Um, we worked for a boss who was very keen on sharing the love, so we did a lot of overseas trips and um, had great, great times going to places like Hong Kong, Phuket, um, uh, where else did we go? Oh, Tahiti was one of them, and you know a lot of trips just over to Sydney and places like that. So they were they were great days where the people that were in charge and owned the company didn't mind spending a bit of money on you know on the people that worked for them, and that was that was really cool. And we had a couple of great competitions. Probably oh, we did some good ones, April Fool's jokes and things like that, like a jumbo flying under the Harbour Bridge or a jumbo going under the Harbour Bridge which turned out to be a giant pink elephant on a boat. But a lot of people went down in those days to see this, what they thought would be a 747 jumbo flying under the Harbour Bridge. Didn't happen. Um, and, yeah, lots of others. There was um, Tosses, which was a great competition where we would do things like, say, uh, we're going to buy you a new $2,000 wardrobe or we're going to blow up your existing wardrobe on the toss of a coin. <laughs> so heads, you win a brand new wardrobe, two grand worth. Tails, we blow up your wardrobe. And <laughs> and we had about five of those different scenarios, like we're going to throw your wedding dress into a cement mixer or we're going to send you on a brand new honeymoon. Uh, one was we'll send you to Adelaide Grand Prix or we're going to drop your car from a helicopter. And I think the final one was we're going to send you all to Disneyland or oh, I can't remember what we're going to do to them. Send you to Disneyland or fill. Oh no, one was go to Fiji or fill your lounge with sand. And uh, yeah, I can't remember the Disneyland. Anyway, they all they all tossed tails. So all of them, we did the bad thing. And oh. um, yeah, everyone was so upset, especially with the Disneyland one, because <laughs> I think we sent. Oh yeah, Disneyland was. You are going to Disneyland, but if you toss tails, like half of your family has to stay behind. They tossed tails, so one little girl had to stay behind. <clears throat> but she went anyway. Um, so that was good. But probably the one that got us like actual international kind of interest was Toot for Loot, which was where we got drivers to stop at red lights, obviously, which they were supposed to do. But then when it turned green, we got them to stay there. And so if they got tooted, they got like $100. If they got verbal abuse, they got $200 or something. I'm not sure what the schedule was. If they got physically approached they got more and if police turned up they got even more and so we recorded five of them and then we played them out on air and of course people in Auckland traffic thought that we were causing the traffic jam because they'd hear this person sitting at the lights when it was green and they're supposed to be going people got really really angry so after we played two on air 
Uh, they got pulled off air and we weren't allowed to play anymore, even though we pre-recorded them and they weren't actually holding anyone up on those days. Uh, yeah, and we got we got interest right from the BBC and all around the world asking us about this competition we'd done. So that's that was pretty cool. Do you think you would be able to do that these days, competitions like that? Or do you I, think I guess changed? they still happen. It's it's changed a bit. That you got to remember, there was no internet, no social media, no other distractions. So radio had a kind of a monopoly on the morning, you know, morning listeners, especially on breakfast show, on the morning listeners in their cars and that sort of thing. So you had a big audience that would respond really well. And that meant, of course, you had more uh, resources and more money to give away and better prizes. And we sent a lot of people would have won trips and various other things off more FM in the day, like good prizes. Yeah, so I, don't, I think in that way it's it's less. But, you know, you, you only have to listen to radio in New Zealand. There's some great, creative, imaginative people still doing wonderful things. And, in fact, the things I've just talked about probably seem really old hat. And, well, that's because they are. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, that it's... Yeah, they were good times, certainly good times. I was talking, actually, I was talking to um, uh, Jeremy and Matt on Radio Hauraki doing an interview the other day, and Jeremy Wells was like, he said, your timing's been great, hasn't it? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He says, you've moved from all the different media at the very right time. You know, you were in radio when it was the good old days, and, you know, moved to TV when it was the good old days, and I was like, yeah. And I told him to get into the metaverse. I said, that's where it's going to be next. But back then, no one had heard of the metaverse, so he didn't know what I was talking about. Um, but yeah, other highlights was, were celebrities we interviewed. We interviewed some great celebrities. And oh, in fact, one of the best ones was we went on a junket to LA and we interviewed a whole bunch of people there. It was a, yeah, a real highlight. You know, William Shatner's, Kiefer Sutherland, um, people like that. It was uh, pretty amazing. Janet Jackson was an interesting interview. She'd just been interviewed by Paul Holmes. I don't know if you remember Paul Holmes, but he'd upset her in some way. So she walked into our, we were in a hotel room to do the interview and she walked in with her minders and she was grumpy. She was not happy. And we were like, uh-oh. But we had a reasonable time with her. We had about 15 minutes. So we won her over and she, she ended up being happy, happy chappy, which was great. Awesome. What did you do in radio after Kim and Corbett ended? Uh, so Kim and Corbett ended and then uh, Joe Cotton and Jesse Mulligan came in to do the breakfast show with me. And now I'm working with Jesse on the project, of course. And then that turned into Joe Cotton and Peter Dakin. And then, yeah, then I decided to leave. Time was up. <laughs> I think that from the, from the moment that Kim left, my heart probably wasn't in it as much. Uh, so, yeah, so that drifted out. And then I left radio in 2011 and sort of just did TV. And, and that's kind of seven days was just hitting its straps. It was two years old. And I had that as my creative outlet. So I did that and... In conjunction with that, we did the the live tour, so I had my live stand-up that I was doing and live performing, and then, what, five years ago, the project sort of asked me to get on board, and so I've done that, and uh, that's, yeah, that's kind of it. Would you ever go back to radio? Um, never say never, but when I do do radio interviews and go into studios, there's this little kind of something happens in the back of my neck, and I tense up, and I, I yeah. I, th I think the way that it ended for me was not great. It was very much a fade out, and and I and and I decided to leave on my own terms because it was time, and it hasn't felt like time to go back. I don't, I haven't ha haven't felt a hunger for it, and I think that's because I've got other creative outlets. You know, um, seven days in the project and stand up, so I've got sort of that to keep me keep me busy. But I, I really I I love and admire the the teams that we have on air in New Zealand. I think they're world class. What were the challenges of switching from radio to TV? Were there any? Uh, yeah. Uh, 
I, I think <laughs> could get into trouble. I think TV's easier. I think Ooh. people underestimate how hard radio is. Well, well, especially, especially when you know you're putting together a, a breakfast show and there's like it was Kim and I. We had Hillary Barry doing news, but then coming into the studio and Paul Ego was our producer. So between those four people, you had to put together four hours of entertainment. Admittedly, there were songs, but. But it's a, got a voracious appetite for material, you know, so you're constantly harvesting your own life, constantly thinking of what you can do next, constantly trying to um, provide that entertainment. And, um, and, and it's, it's constant work and it's, it's a hard work in radio. And I think that's that in TV, there are so many more people that do the job for you that it's, that makes that part easier. I think the harder thing with TV is uh, that sometimes the time that it takes and the fact that you need to be sharp and on when you are on, and you know, doing a four-hour breakfast show on radio, you sort of, if one little bit doesn't go that well, you sort of can recover and you have a little bit more time to to do a bit of exposition or do whatever, find find what it is you're after. Uh, on TV, particularly on something like The Project, which is a half-hour show, take out the ads, you know, it's 21 minutes four people at the desk, divide that by four, <laughs> you know, when you get to say something, you kind of got to make it count I think that's a, that's more of a challenge on TV. People like Sam Smith and Becky Umbers, who we've had yeah. in here, have um, said you're still very active and always talking to the writers and stuff. Do you yeah. still enjoy writing? I do. I'm just. I just. I feel like. Uh, I feel like I've lost that. That muscle hasn't been exercised enough because those people you're talking about, Sam and Becky, amazing writers, as are the other writers. You know, Tony and and Lana and the whole team. Uh, that's that's on. On the project, I'm one. I'm I'm worried now. I'm miss, missing names out. I'm going, oh shit! Who have I left out? I definitely have. I can't bloody remember her name. Anyway, um, they're amazing, and so you know they they write stuff for me, and I get stuff written for me on seven days. So that muscle hasn't been exercised as much. And I I used to enjoy. It's in the early days of seven days, we'd get together and and have these writing sort of sessions, and they were great fun. We'd just sit down for a few hours and knock around. The stories of the week and you know try and come up with lines and ideas and and that still happens but i'm not involved with that as much so so i do miss that in a certain way um and like i say so much good stuff is written for me i, I feel i feel very lazy in that respect i've sort of lost that muscle also as you get older every idea you think of you go i've done it before i've seen it done better you know or or that so cliche which are roadblocks you put in front of yourself that simply shouldn't be there because um, you look at the set list of you know some of the greatest stand-ups. Their set list no different. Deals with a lot of similar topics, just finds different and clever ways to look at them. So yeah. As a comedian, are you able to watch um, TV or comedian other comedians live and enjoy them, or are you sitting there going, oh, "I could have done that differently"? Uh, I don't watch a lot of stand-up. I have to admit, um, but what I did watch and you know what I occasionally watch I usually makes me want to give up because <laughs> I you know I see it and they're so good and I'm just like wow you know that's they've found stuff that I wouldn't have found like I say I put those roadblocks and they don't they find other angles and yeah they, they smash it or they're just brilliant surrealists top of mind stuff you know um, you know like your Bill Bailey's and uh, and people like that um, I'm trying to think of the other ones can't uh, couple of British British ones, oh, Eddie Izzard um, and Ross Noble. And yeah, they're great, just stream of consciousness stuff. And you just, yeah, they're so good. And I look at the 
Kiwi comedians now, and particularly female comedians, are smashing it like worldwide. Your Ursulas and your Mel's and the Haley's, um, and I, I, I just admire just how sharp and economical the comedy is. You know, it used to take us three minutes to get to a joke. Now they've told you know ten jokes in that three minutes, probably more. And um, so yeah, I, I, they're, watching them is does make me sort of think well. I need to do a lot of work to get back up to their level. How would you say your comedy style has evolved over the years? Um, I th- I think I've think I've sort of found that my I suppose my my sort of voice, if you want to say, on stage, it started like I say with sketches and stuff like that, and us trying to be Monty Python and and doing sketches like that. I didn't really understand the other levels that were operating with Monty Python. So I think I've I think I've learned a little bit more about the the different levels that can operate in comedy and realizing that what I find funny other people might not. <laughs> like I love the absurd, right? So but the absurd is is it's quite hard for people to enjoy the absurd unless you're really really good at it. Like like Bill Bailey. Um so, so yeah, I guess I guess my stand-up has gravitated or slowly it used to be a, a you know completely different to who I am and I think it's slowly moved towards more me so what you see on stage is more me but obviously an amplified version and a, a shocking version um, and I've and I've and I've learned a lot of stuff you know I didn't know what I what I didn't know back then and a lot of stuff about what's appropriate you know um, kind of lazy ignorant racism and sexism and stuff that was you know, I don't think ever think I was particularly like that, but there were elements of it in in my stand up that are and and my comedy and my radio that, you know, just wouldn't wouldn't be able to do now, wouldn't want to do now, and I've learnt learnt that over time and still learning, so I guess that's that's changed it as 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 well, you know. Do you miss the freedom of the lack of political correctness in the old days? And do you think we've gone too far with political correctness? No, not at all. And it, saying political correctness kind of kind of tinges it, doesn't it? Makes it makes it sound like some weird sort of rule. Uh, you know, times are changing, and there's the. I think right now it's quite a rapid pace of change when it comes to things like racism and sexism and bigotry and and you know, I I I enjoy learning and moving with those times and I, I really don't think anyone has a has a cause to complain there's a lot of wrongs that are being righted um and every now and then maybe someone gets frustrated because they've got a great piece of gear that they can't use anymore but you know just change it work it you know make it make it acceptable or or just go and perform to the people that are going to enjoy that but if you want to you know perform to new audiences and audiences that that don't want to hear that sort of stuff, then you're going to have to change. And I don't think it's that hard. And, you know, you've got a good job. If you're doing stand-up, you're pretty lucky, pretty fortunate. Do you have lots of free time? And what do you do yes. in your free time? Uh, I do have a lot of free time. Video games, golf. Weirdly, I've gone to gardening, something I thought I'd never do because my dad was always forcing us to garden. So it's something that it sort of traumatizes me. Uh, actually, I just recently wrote a uh, column in the Women's Weekly about a real thing that happened to me. I was playing a video game called Green Hell, which is a survival game. So you have to, you know, assemble resources and you do things like you plant plants to grow them so that you can harvest them. And And I was doing this and I was going, I was getting this dopamine hit from a plant growing in this video game. And I was like, what am I doing? Like, I can literally do this in real life. Imagine the hit I can get from that. 
So I did. So I've started planting seedlings and stuff and watching them grow is immensely rewarding. And I'm not quite sure what to do with it. It's sort of, it's happened over the last couple of years, I guess. Like I grew a hundred lettuces and we we're never going to use them all. And they all, you know, came, came harvestable at the same time. And <laughs> so my, my garden management is terrible, but I, I do enjoy doing a little bit of that. I'm trying to get the kids interested. They've just planted some sunflower seeds. So, so I'm a terrible, terrible gardener, but I'm, I'm doing a little bit of that, which like I said, I swore I never would and, and probably dates me into, from your audience's perspective. And that's fine because I am 60. So that's what I should be doing. <laughs> what kind of video games do you play? Uh, like I said, survival games. Um, Green Hell is one I've just got into. Uh, what else have I played recently? Um, uh, Cyberpunk. Played that. Um, one that I keep going back to is one called No Man's Sky, which is a, a space kind of, uh, yeah, a space game. We visit planets and stuff. It's all procedurally generated. So theoretically, you don't bump into anyone else or anyone. Everything you're seeing is is new. And they keep releasing new parts of that, and that's that's quite good. So I get lost in that a little bit. Um, the Last of Us, all those sort of games. Yeah, I tried to get into Red Dead Redemption, and I played it for a bit, and that's kind of a survival game in a way. It's you know, it's a big sandpit mm. and um, or sandbox, as they say. Uh, but I, I, <laughs> I was talking to someone the other day, and I said I can't really get into it, and he's like, oh well. I said, I'm not really into westerns. He said, well, that'll be a big reason. <laughs> I mean, it is it is a western that's, cowboy That's what it is. <laughs> that's what it is. So I gave it a go. And I, I do, yeah, I, I'm kind of come on and off with those video games. Or like I'll, I'll go, I should try and find a new video game. And then three weeks of my life disappear and my family don't see me. So I try not to do it too often. But um, yeah, that's good. It's great. It's great fun. I, I enjoy it. You mentioned the metaverse earlier. Um, yeah. Is that something you keep up to date with? And do you keep up to date with new technologies and that kind of thing? No. I, uh, it's Mark Zuckerberg's name being linked with it simply makes me my skin crawl. So I've Ooh. studiously avoided it, aware of what it is. But yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I think that, that particular one may be overhyped. I do think that we will be spending a lot of our time in virtual realities, but I don't that that the way that he's trying to own the metaverse, I suppose, nah, to, not into that at all. Sort of in a similar vein. Do you think NFTs and cryptocurrency is the future? No. <laughs> Put it this way: I, I I've I bought a few shares in my life, and and I you know I own a house. They're the sort of investments that I understand to a certain extent. I would never invest in crypto or NFTs. I don't really understand them. I don't know what the the benefit is. I. NFTs, I think, are definitely a phase, but crypto could become something, but I think it just has to be embraced more widely before it's going to be genuinely useful. Some would say you're a bit of a private person. Do you agree with that, and is that intentional? Um, Megan and I, my, my wife and I, we, we're both a bit hermity. We we like nothing more than just hanging around at home, you know? And uh, we love our friends, but if they show up unannounced, we're like, oh, God. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So don't studiously avoid it. I, in the early days, I didn't mind doing stuff with, like my kids, the odd woman's magazine or something. These days, I probably wouldn't, because now I think you can they recognize you can recognize them. Whereas when they're babies, babies are all the same. So I don't think you'd even recognize them from them. So so I'm a bit more careful about about that maybe. But uh, yeah, I don't. Um, I don't act actively go out seeking publicity, but um, but you know I'm pre I think I'm pretty approachable. 
Do you think social media is a good thing? And are you glad you didn't have it when Kim and Corbett was around? <laughs> Does anyone answer that question other than saying, yes, I'm glad it wasn't around? <laughs> I mean, seeing what happens now with a perspective of what, you know, what went on back then, you're like, oh my God, I'm so glad it wasn't around. But then had it been around, things would have been different. But I, yes, I'm glad it wasn't around. I, I don't know, it's, do you love it or hate it? I'd, I'm scared for my children what it could do to them in terms of the bullying. But then it's so part of their world, they're growing up, they don't know anything different. It's just kind of there. And as they're, they're 11 and 9, so they don't have social media accounts. But when they do, you know, it's, it's going to be there. It's all pervasive. It's a fact now. The genie's out of the bottle. I'm hoping in some way that the simple fact that online bullying exists it will in some ways arm you against it. Do you know what I mean? I think we're in the early days of social media where mm. people are hitting out and bullying and doing all those things. And you, I don't think you can protect your kids. Or you can't stop them using it, but you can sort of uh, arm them, I suppose, with the self-confidence to know what is good, what is bad, and, and what matters. Um, Jesse Mulligan is kind of an interesting case study in that. He was on the original Seven Sharp and got a lot of social media sort of uh, mail <laughs> messages. And he used to do a, he used to, I don't know why he read them, but he would read them and he'd go through and he'd basically categorize them and he'd go, well, that one is, they're making a point. It's a, it's a genuine critical point. I need to probably think about that. That one's just pure hatred. Um, that one, you know, means nothing and 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 that one is just someone who doesn't like me personally so I don't I don't need to take that on board and he would categorize them like that which is pretty intense I would imagine I don't know how he did that I personally don't use it or look at it now Megan something she's I think she, yeah she'll she'll look online and and you know if, if there's any if I'm in the news for any reason she'll kind of go yeah it's all right not too bad and she'll show me some good ones but I don't look at it otherwise. I, I don't. You know, when you're on stages, stand-up comedians will tell you they'll the whole room will be laughing, but one person won't. That is the one that they will focus on. And I think most creatives are the same. They'll they'll get 100, 100 compliments, but it's the one that's not a compliment that they'll kind of dwell on and wonder why that person didn't love them. And so I think it's a bit the same with social media. I'm, I just don't need any of the negative comments. So I used to like Twitter. I used to... F follow Twitter to get my news really but I've ditched that as well because uh, it's just it's just too much hate that comes out I don't need it don't need the negativity so I just don't go there anymore the Facebook I gave up long ago so I don't really oh Instagram's the only one I have and I'm more of a consumer than a contributor hmm. what were the lockdowns like for you were you able to keep working during the lockdown or did you I go was. into hermit mode I'm an essential service Blake didn't you know <laughs> that surprised me as well no, I felt very fortunate during the lockdowns um, that uh, because the project was on, we could uh, I could still go to work and earn an income, and that was good for my sanity. I was into walking at the time, so I'd walk to work and walk home, and there was no one around, no traffic. It was it was insane time, but I felt very fortunate that I could work. Uh, that that kept my sanity. Um, having said that, the second lockdown kind of got to me. I don't know. I don't think I'm particularly susceptible to those things. I don't mind being, you know, I don't mind with my family being locked up in our house. We <laughs> almost prefer it. We're made for lockdowns. But even that one 
sort of just sort of just got to me. I don't know what it really was. Just a general kind of negativity that started to creep in. Just a kind of a, you know, what, what's this all about? What's the point of this? When is this going to end? So, yeah, first one good, second one bad. <laughs> Very simple and easy answer. Yeah. <laughs> Black and white, that's what we want, isn't it, Blake? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> You've interviewed some big names over the years. Mm. Did anyone ever make you starstruck? Oh, yeah, all the time. My friends say that they can tell, like, I act differently around stars. Anyone famous, really. I do. Um, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there are heaps. I, actually, probably because I grew up consuming a lot of British um, TV comedy, um, Griff Reese Jones came on Seven Days, and that was, I was definitely starstruck then. And you won't know him, but he was uh, part of a, a very funny comedy group called Not the Nine O'Clock News, and then he became, uh, alas, Smith and Jones, him and um, Mel Smith, another British comedian used to do comedy, and they were very, very good, very funny. And uh, for, for him to come on Seven Days was quite a moment. And I could probably probably think of some others. Um, yeah. Uh, Bill Bailey was always a great interview, always just amazed with him. Um, when we went to LA and did this junket, so Fox TV had booked out the top floor of this hotel and they put all their stars of the day in different rooms and you would interview them. So you get 10 minutes each. And it was, it was weird. A weird group of media was mainly European TV stations and one radio station, which was us. So we got known as the radio guys because it was myself and Kim and the late, great Tim Homer, who was a big physical presence. So you have me, I'm six foot two and Tim, who's just as big. And then Kim walking between us. So we, we looked, we looked interesting to start with. And we just got we got on really warmly with the people who are running it, and we got known as the radio guys. So we did some wonderful interviews there, and uh, William Shatner was great. And there was Kiefer Sutherland, who was massive at the time, doing a show called Twenty Four. He would only do one interview, and they gave it to us, much to the upset of all the TV stations. But uh, but that was pretty cool moments as well. Yeah, meeting people like that is it's pretty amazing. Who inspires you? And are your inspirations different now to what they used to be when you were younger? Um, yeah, I'm, and uh, who inspires me? Yeah, d definitely. I mean, like Python was an inspiration when I was younger, you know, in terms of a comedy thing. But like I say, back back when I was inspired by Python, I didn't really understand the other levels, the depth that was involved in their comedy. And then, you know, your heroes grow old, don't they? Some of the things John Cleese does these days, you're like, oh, God, how did I ever look up to him? Um, so, yeah, any any good stand-ups I, I really admire, and they, they do inspire me when I see some good stand-up. And, and by that I mean someone who sort of really knows who they are on stage. Like, there's sort of become this thing that you see a lot of comedians who are really good but it's just line after line after line and you sort of go, well, yeah, but who are you? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I like comedians that, that it's so kind of natural and it's them and it's, you know, a version of them. I admire that. I'm just, I'm trying to think of names. Again, it's, um, oh, who was it that uh, got into a whole lot of trouble recently, got me too'd. Um, American comedian, bald, what's his name? Bill Burr? Not Bill Burr. I'm trying to work out with Bill Burr whether I like him or not. 
Like, p- part of me is like, he's just being honest and telling it as it is. And then other part of me is like, he's a bit of a dick. Says some terrible things. Uh, no, it's the guy used to manhandle himself in front of people and got into trouble for it. God, God what's his name? Anyway. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he got, he got cancelled. But he's, he's still going which some, some people don't like, but um, he was a great comedian. It's that, that old thing, how, how do you separate the artist from, from the art, you know, mm. which is a tough thing to do, but you have to yeah, judge them by that. I'll go through the alphabet. That's the way of find, finding it out. <laughs> Louis C.K. Louis C.K. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, his stand-up was, I thought, was inspirational. But now it's tarred, you know, that was back in the day, and now it's, it's tarred with his behavior toward women. And you just go, well, unacceptable, sorry. Hmm. And so everything that you see now of his is you see through that lens, and it spoils it. Can't think of any other inspirations right now. That's not very inspirational, is it? <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. What do you think of cancel culture and the Me Too movement? Do you think they've, they go too far at points? I, I think any, any movement has, has an extreme part of it right and they can go too far but I think both of those well I think the Me Too movement was absolutely was something that had to happen right and it um, you know I don't don't uh, I'm not losing any shedding any tears for the people that got they got caught in that and I'm glad that people are being held accountable for their actions maybe sometimes you sort of look back and you go in context and all the rest of it. Sometimes there are extreme examples where you go, "Yeah, really? Is that is that really what what this movement is about?" But but also, it's uncovered some horrendous behaviour by people that we would not have known was going on if not for the Me Too movement, and that's made us judge people harshly, punish people, and also have a look at our own behaviour and and how we we are. And I think that's a good thing, uh, you know, when it comes to how we treat women on this planet. So. Yeah, I think that's good. And, and yeah, there are people in any movement that will take it too far or, or you know, point the finger and you sort of go, really? Yeah, it's sort of, yeah, don't think if you're doing your movement any favours there. Um, cancel culture is kind of interesting, isn't it? I, it's, <clears throat> it's a funny, funny old thing. I don't know if you know John Ronson. He's written a few books and he does <clears throat> does a bit of a podcast and he's, he's done a great one on... Um, so you've been shamed on social media and that's that's quite sobering to listen to and people that didn't do much wrong getting absolutely slammed in the early days of things like Twitter and well they did something wrong but they the punishment maybe didn't fit the crime is what I'm saying so yeah that that sort of cancelling is is quite horrendous to to witness or, or be told about um but then other times you go, well, it's good that this person's getting told what they should be told. I just feel that in general with social media, and this might be its saviour, is it's all overused. You know, people overuse it and then they'll pile onto someone who doesn't deserve it. <clears throat> and then, as I say, my daughters who are 11 and 9, when they grow up, I'm sort of hoping that because they're used to that behaviour, that if ever happens to them, they'll go, oh, yeah, that's just social media and shake it off. That's what I'm hoping. Because yeah, right. You you see that when when something when people try to cancel someone for whatever reason, and you sort of go, oh, that's kind of you're kind of overreacting there and not doing the that tool any favors. So it's an amazing tool that that came about that the the public, if you like, can have a say in how someone's behaving. 
<clears throat> which is powerful, right? It's a powerful tool, but you sort of go, it's been used for good and to put some people in line, but then then it continues to be used just because it's usable and, and you sort of go, that's going to that's gonna blunten that particular tool. Mm. Uh, currently in your time on seven days in the project, what are some moments that stand out? Is blunten a word? Blunt? I'm sure I'm it sure. is somewhere. If not, you've made it up. Yeah. Good job. Coin it. Se- uh, seven days, highlights. Yeah. Um, well, just, just going for as long as it has really is a highlight. I, I, you know, one of the highlights was the first show going to air and we all gathered in the Mount Eden Bowling Club to watch it play out. And it was it was funny. We, you know, it was a funny show. And uh, not surprisingly, because it had seven comedians on it. And we were laughing so much and it was kind of amplified by the fact we couldn't believe we were doing it. And we couldn't believe we were getting away with, you know, talking nonsense on TV and it and it was a show and it was funny. It was making us laugh. And yeah, that that was an amazing, amazing day. And to be honest, the beer was reasonably priced. So that was just the cherry on top. Uh, so that was definitely a highlight. And then hitting milestones, you know, like 300th episodes and, and, and five years and 10 years. Yeah, just incredible. It was a real pinch, pinch yourself moments. Um, yeah, other than that, like like I say, you know, Griff Reese Jones coming on, and that was pretty amazing for me. <laughs> the rest of them are a bit younger, and they're like, who? <laughs> <laughs> but he was great. Do you ever feel like the old person on the seven-day set? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah, no, and not just in terms of my age, but also my role. So I, I like to contrast it with the project. Like on seven days, I'm... I'm the boss, if you like. I'm the dad. I'm trying to keep everyone under control. On the project, Jesse and Kanoa are, are the mum and dad, so I'm I can be the naughty kid, uh, even though I'm probably I'm not sure they're two ages combined. No, I'm probably younger than that, but but yeah, I'm, I'm way older than them. So so yeah, and 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 on seven days, I'm constantly teased about my age, which is yeah, which is great as well. I don't mind that at all. It's as I say to the comedians, like why why you make that's like driving somewhere and making fun of the city you're driving to. <laughs> you're not going to end up anywhere else. You're going to be the same place as me. And so my my comeback, if you like, is time. <laughs> I'll have a, I'll have a smile on my face in twenty thirty years when those comedians reach the age they were teasing, and I go, ha ha, how's it feel now? <laughs> oh, that I'll be dead. <laughs> I suppose. So yesterday we put out on the Bean Break Instagram account asking for people to send in questions. For oh, really? Answer. Yeah. Cool. So one of them questions was, what's your favorite joke of all time? Wow, that's toughy, isn't it? What is your favorite joke of all time? God, might have to come back to me on that. That's that's a toughy. My, probably the jokes that, that I sort of remember that stick with me is are the jokes that you learn as a kid, like especially ones that your dad tells you and stuff. So dad introduced us to the goons and that whole sort of British humour and stuff like that and the surreal sort of humour. And once he, once he told me a joke, he said, what's the difference between a duck? I said, I don't know. He says, one of its legs is both the same. It's stuck with me. I love it. Had, you know, And people look at you when you say that joke. Where's the joke? Well, there's not one. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's. I'll, I'll, I'll nominate that as my favourite joke because you have very fond memories, you know, of your parents around the dinner table, the laughter and, and jokes like that coming out. It's really good. 
do you like your dad jokes? You you that kind of dad? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't I don't deliberately go for the dad joke, uh, but more than once been accused of telling a dad joke, <laughs> and my response to that is always, well, you complimented me on a joke, like. Even the word dad being in there doesn't change it for me. Still a joke, so I'll take it. Thank you very much. And and it's and it's kind of a it's saying dad when someone tells a joke and saying dad joke. I mean, sometimes you're right. It deserves it. But it's kind of like a teenager saying whatever, right? It's a little bit it's a little bit dismissive. And uh, you know, I've heard great jokes told and the accusation has been leveled dad joke, and I'm like, "Wow, that's that's quite a slap. That's a bit of an insult to someone who's actually come up with a really good joke. And yeah, it might have been a pun or something, which dad jokes tend to be, but it was still a good one. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there are, there are good dad jokes and bad dad jokes. But yeah, if someone someone hits me with dad joke, I'll take it. I go, cool. You recognized it as a joke? We're winning. <laughs> and what's your favorite question you've ever been asked by an interviewer? <laughs> um, my favorite question... Or one that sticks out to you. Yeah. Um, it's a tough, tough one again to answer. Um, I, yeah, I, again, I like, I, I guess I like stuff that comes from left field. Um, uh, just, 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 I guess when someone, it's, it's always interesting when someone has found out something about you or knows some little hobby or something. Um, I'm into guitars. I'm better at collecting them than, than playing them. But, um, you know, to be asked in an interview out of nowhere, like, what's, the, what's, uh, what's the favorite guitar I have in my collection? You say, Oh, that's cool. And you talk about that. Um, I do like when people kind of gently make fun of the fact that I make model airplanes. That's always good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so stuff like that. Uh, yeah. I, I like Palmy North questions. They're always good. They're always fun. Because Palmy's a great place. It's a great place to grow up. I mean, you know, we all make fun of places, me included, and make fun of Palmy. But uh, where you grow up is all about the people that you grew up with and the kids you had fun with and all the rest of it. It's not really about the physical location. Although, in Palmy's case, very windy. <laughs> Windier than Wellington, but maybe doesn't get up to the high, doesn't get up to the peak speeds of Wellington, but it's, uh, it's as windy. Hence the windmills on the hills there. Hmm. And, uh, and the weather's not great, let's admit it. <laughs> But it was a great place to grow up. Loved it. Do you still have the strat you were given when you left More FM? <laughs> I do. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I do. It's a, yeah, 59 Fender Stratocaster. It's not actually a 59, but it's, it's reissue? a- Reissue? Yeah, reissue. Uh, but it's also a heavy relic. So it's oh, been worn lovely. down. So yeah. So it's, I will never play a guitar enough to make it look like that. And it's a bit like buying distressed jeans, you know? It's a look. And a lot of purists- don't like that, but I do, and it's a. But it's really, it's like it's good quality that they've then worn down. So mm. it's a real pleasure to play. Yeah, I love relic guitars. I think yeah, they're, they're really cool. They're way cool. What's your coffee order? I'm a long black. Yeah, I'm a long black. I do remember in when must have been about 2009, maybe when I was working with Jesse and Joe on uh, on More FM. Uh, and I asked for a cappuccino. They both burst out laughing. I don't know why to this day. I think it's because no one had ordered ca- a cappuccino for a long time. You know, it wasn't a wasn't a cool coffee because everyone had moved on to you know macchiatos and all the other different names. So, especially because our studios were in Ponsonby, so we're in the middle of cafe culture. To to ask for a cappuccino, I don't know. I don't know what was wrong with that. It was just very beige and and, and old school or something. 
I always remember that. They burst out laughing. I never really knew why. <laughs> What's your favorite film? Uh, I I liked uh, Memento as one of my favorite films. Uh, what's the director's name? He did um, he did Inception as well. Christopher Nolan. Yes, and I, I like I like his films in general. Mm. Although I struggle with the last two to sort of get a handle on them, but um, or to get to like them as much. But Memento, I remember, was the first movie that I sort of looked at and went, "Wow, I love that. That's really cool. That playing with time." And uh, so I said, "Right, that can be my favorite movie." Nominated it. <laughs> Have you seen the trailer for his uh, new film coming out in 2024 about the guy who invented the atom bomb? No. It's all in black and white. Oh, really? It looks really good. It's oh, got cool. Killian Murphy and quite a few other. Oh, big wow. Names Is it like sort of documentary sort of style, or do you think it'll have that Christopher Nolan a, twist? I think it's like a biopic with a Christopher Nolan twist. Right, right, cool. Because I struggle with Tenet a bit. Maybe I need to watch it again. <laughs> What's that song you hear on the radio that you just can't stand? Your least favorite song? Lemon Tree. Why is that? Um, I don't know. Uh, just, I just, it's an interesting story with me and Lemon Tree, actually. Do you know the song? No, not from. Oh, I'd, I'd have to play it. I don't even, what was, um, yeah, you need to find it and play a little bit of it. Driving along in my car. I'm like, even that starting lyric really irritated me. And then something about a lemon tree. And I was writing a piece about, someone asked me to write about my favorite song and I said, I'm going to write about my least favorite song, Lemon Tree. I did some research. He actually wrote that about his uh, girlfriend who was killed in a car crash and she hit a lemon tree. So from that moment, I felt terrible ever picking on the song Lemon Tree. Uh, and again, that's like the artist and the art, you know, they're, they're all intertwined, right? So I don't, I don't hate on Lemon Tree as much as I used to. But it still be my pick of a of a song that when I hear it, I'm, yeah, I initially get that cringe and then I remember what it's about and I get I sort of relax a little bit. So it's a bit of a roller coaster when I hear Lemon Tree these days. Fair enough. Doesn't happen very often, thankfully. <laughs> and can I come on seven days? Yeah, why not? Sweet. I mean, I can say yes. I say <laughs> yes to a lot of people. Getting past <laughs> Rob is the real big issue. Do you do you do a bit of comedy? You into that? Uh, Sam Smith. Um, spent, oh yeah. He spent. 20 minutes last week trying to convince me to start so wow I, that was quite a kick up the ass so i think i might have to yeah man you should definitely definitely uh give it a go did he say like go to the classic and yep. do yeah go yep. to classic do their so, raw night raw well how many minutes do you have to have for that six six yeah no that's good it's a great thing just um yeah plan out that six minutes perform it at home over and over and over and over and over so you can do it like without even thinking about it because when you first get up on stage and do it, uh, it'll 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 go like that, and you'll be off stage. And you're like, "What happened?" Um, yeah, it's your second or third gigs that are ones where you, the nightmares happen. But first gig is great. I've, which, funnily enough, I'm a little bit jealous in a way that comedians now are coming into a fully formed comedy community with a comedy club and all the rest of it, which which I didn't have when I was starting. So I never, I don't have that first gig story. I never really have it. Like it was, I guess it was at Massey University performing sketches with the other people at um, at, at Massey, but uh, there's never that, I don't ever remember that first kind of getting up and doing stand-up on my own. Even even when the comedy club started, I sort of did comedy with my brother, uh, Nigel, and we were the Corbett brothers, sort of did songs and stuff before we gravitated into doing stuff solo. But yeah, you should give it a go. <laughs> give it a go, man. Do you play guitar as well? Yeah. Oh. 
Well, it's always an opening for that. The trouble in New Zealand is with musical comedy, you've got Flight of the Concords as your benchmark. Yeah. It's like you give up before you start, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a very high benchmark <laughs> to reach. Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think people realise just how musically talented those guys are, uh, particularly Brett. So, yeah, anyway. If you had to give your younger version of yourself some advice, what would what would you say to young Jeremy Corbett? Um, uh, what would I say to a young Jeremy Corbett? I don't want to mess things up, you see. This goes, it's a Christopher Nolan question you're posing to me there because <laughs> what I say to him might affect how things turn out, and I'm pretty happy with the way things turned out. I think I would say uh, something about, uh, about, about friendship, something along the lines of the path to a friend's door is well-worn. Um, I think just, yeah. I don't. I. I'm. I'm quite a hard person to be friends with because I don't try enough. So I guess I could even say it to me, myself now. Uh, but yeah, I think. I think back in the day when I was a youngster, I kind of. I kind of. You sort of focused on getting your own way in life, and and friendship happens very naturally back then. That I think maybe I needed to work a bit harder on the friendships that occurred in my life, and nurture them a bit more. I think is, is I think it's very important at the end of the day. If you were talking to someone who wanted to follow in your footsteps in mm. your kind of career, what would you say to them? Um, turn up on time, uh, do what you're asked to do, maybe offer to do a little bit more, uh, be polite, have manners. That's awesome. it, really. You don't know how rare that is. <laughs> Especially in younger people or in people in general? No, no, no. I, don't, I think the younger generation gets a bad rap. I don't think it's any different to any other generation in that respect. Wow. Um, yeah, uh, I, people people that, you know, people that are nice to work with will get work. People that are immensely talented will get work, but their, their star might shine brightly and maybe for not as long because uh, you can – Crap on people so many times, and especially New Zealand, small place. I think just, yeah, just treat others as you would like to be treated is probably the easiest way to remember the whole thing. Mm. And I'm, I'm a chronic, I was a chronic latecomer um, <laughs> until we introduced a bet. I was writing with some people and I was late and other people were late and they said, right, from now on, if you, you get a five minute period of grace, th then after that, every five minutes, you have to buy a dozen beer. Jesus. And they were like, yeah, there were about eight people in that writing group Every single one of them ended up buying beers except for me. Because once they introduced a competition element, I'm quite competitive. I was like, right, I'm... So from then I turned up on time because I was, I was bad and, I, and I, I focus now a little bit more on trying to be places on time. I don't... I'm not... Die, die is an early. Die is early. Paul... Die is a lot early. Paul is a little bit early. I'm on time. That's, that's sort of how we work, us, the three of us. <laughs> Now that you've been in the box and on the show, who would you want to um, hear on Ben Brack? Who would you recommend we try and get on? Um, well, those those aforementioned, uh, Di and uh, Paul. Uh, any of the, I, I think, interesting stories from people like Melanie Bracewell, Ursula Carlson, Hayley Sproul, who, who are, you know, doing great things. It'd be lovely. Great to hear their kind of the paths they've taken to the success they've had, I think that'd be really interesting. Um, yeah, are we, are we talking strictly comedians? Or? It can be anybody yeah, it you want. It can be anyone. Oh, geez. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I think I think that's probably, I'm worried about drifting off into other areas and then getting into trouble for 
you know, a mission. <laughs> yeah, already with comedians, but that's cool. They're, they're a relaxed bunch, comedians. No anxiety or stress in that, in that group. <laughs> they're talkers. No, they're not. They're horribly twisted people. <laughs> they're terrible, but funny on stage. Yeah. Awesome. And where can the people find you or what you're up to? Uh, they can't. So stop trying. Blake is the only person that knows my contact details. I'm not hard to find, um, you know, it, a quick Google. Um, I'm on the I'm on the project. Seven Days is going to be back next year. Um, I, don't, I don't really blog or, um, like I say, Instagram I tend to consume rather than contribute. Uh, but probably Instagram is, is where I would say stuff that I'm doing. Uh, but, but yeah, that's that's probably it. The, the project, that's on at 7 o'clock every night. Usually usually let people know what I'm up to on that. Should have my own little segment, shouldn't I? Corbett's <laughs> Diary. Tell everyone what I'm doing. Yeah. Tomorrow, video game from, oh, sorry. Tomorrow, get up 7.30, uh, walk my daughter to school. We've got two daughters. One goes to, Megan takes one, I walk the other one. Uh, get home, two more coffees, play Catan uh, on my iPad for 20 minutes, um, then progress to my office where I do admin, and, and, and I do admin while video games are loading. That's probably it. Midday, two sandwiches, uh, then probably, if, I'm, if there's time, get a nap, and then get up and collect my daughter from school, go to the project, come home, have a whiskey, go to bed. And repeat. It's not bad, eh? Yeah, not bad. Not bad, yeah. Jeremy Corbett, thank you so much for coming on Bean Break and chatting to me. A pleasure.